right, good evening everybody. So glad you're all here tonight. This is a little event we do from time to time. We call it FBC Coffee House. And um, so you get the coffee house part, I guess, now. We have a little dessert and some coffee. Um, when we've done this in the past, we've tried to do this in conjunction, usually with a sermon series. And when we're having a certain sort of sermon series or a, a, a different thing like that going on, and it might need a little more depth in terms of teaching. Um, teaching uh, is involved in preaching, but they're not exactly the same thing, right? We want to make sure that we're preaching to the heart on Sunday morning and that you're able to apply the Word on Sunday morning. And um, I enjoy teaching, and I hope that as we preach, as the Bible tells preachers to do, as you're admonished, as you um, have the Word applied to your hearts, that it's done with teaching. We want to bring good meat and good 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 truth to you in the sermons, but at the same time, uh, you guys don't want to listen to a theology lecture every Sunday morning. Um, might not want to listen to one tonight, but you're about to, and, um, and so, uh, so um, but you're here, you know, and surely to goodness, one slice of cheesecake's not worth it if, uh, if you don't want to hear it, so uh, anyway, the coffee might be. Let me, a word about our coffee, we made a change, uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed that our, we made a little bit of a change on our coffee. Um, the coffee that we're using now is called Kingdom Growers. They're associated with the International Mission Board. So the coffee we're buying and serving here at the church now, uh, when we buy that coffee, uh, that money goes to help a ministry called Kingdom Growers. And they are actually using um, the coffee business. So, you know, coffee's not typically grown here. It has to be imported. Uh, there are farmers in, in countries. Some of those farmers are in closed countries. So they actually use the coffee business going and buying the coffee, training farmers, uh, all the way up and down the supply chain of coffee to try to s share the gospel. And it also helps them get in countries that are hard to get in uh, with the gospel. So hopefully it tastes better. And I like their mission better than I like Maxwell House's mission. So, so uh, we're, we're helping get the gospel to the nation's with our coffee. So just remember that and hope you're enjoying enjoying the coffee. And I'm a little bit of a coffee nerd and I thought I want people to leave and be like, and you know what else? They have great coffee, you know? And so uh, I hope that's I hope that's what's happening. So it's hospitality. It's a fruit of the spirit. So anyway, um, you get the coffee part, you get that, but we feel like it would be good from time to time to go a little deeper and Galatians is such a naughty book. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet. There's a lot going on. And in the next couple of chapters, and we're going to look at chapter 3 of Galatians some tonight, Paul starts to make some really involved, really naughty, careful arguments. Um, and I think it's really important. I've noticed over the years, this is a place, how do we understand the law and the gospel? And when I say the law, I don't mean uh, commands from the Lord necessarily, right? Right? There are always commands from the Lord that every Christian at all times has to obey. I'm talking about, in particular, the Mosaic law, the law that God gave through Moses and that was connected to the Mosaic covenant. And that's a big chunk of the commands God's given his people over the centuries. So we want to think through and pray through and try to understand. It looks like we got a refill on coffee. Anybody needs coffee. This is real casual, so y'all can go grab coffee if you want. Um, but we want to make sure that we understand then how does this big chunk of the Mosaic Law apply to Christians today? How do we, how do we understand it today? 
And uh, we want to look through that. And I think it will help us as we work through the book of Galatians to think in these to think in these terms. So before we get going, is anybody have any questions about what we're talking about? Somebody want to leave now? <laughs> Forever hold your peace, you know? Was anybody here like, I'm a lawyer. I thought we were going to talk about the law and uh, the land or whatever. Okay. Before we get started, then let, me, let me pray for us. And we're going to be looking at Scripture tonight. Um, and then let me just remind you, um, when we're done here in just a moment, we can hang out. Uh, but I will open up for questions. And would love to hear any questions you have or questions you think about. And we can talk about this, or if you want to talk about something else from the book of Galatians, that's fine. We might try to see if folks that have those sorts of questions for tonight or Galatians or a sermon first. And then if things die down and nobody say anything and you want to ask what the Nephilim are, that's fine too. You know, we'll, we'll open that up. I know somebody wants to ask that. So uh, anyway, if you want to do that, we'll do that too. But we might give uh, germane questions for this first. Um, so let me pray for us and we'll dig in to uh, law and gospel. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you have, by your blood, brought us to your Father as sons. God, we thank you for the fact that you've adopted us as sons through Christ. And so we know now that we have the same standing before you that your Son Jesus Christ does because of what he has done. And God, I pray as we look to the law to get a glimpse of your heart your holiness and your righteousness, and as we remember the fact that we are sons and daughters of the living God, that we'll be moved to obedience through Christ, by His grace and through faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me ask you all this question. Have you ever seen the Bible disavowed, or, or have you ever seen Christians called hypocrites? I could just stop there and everybody, yeah, of course. Uh, you ever seen Christians be hypocrites? We've seen that too, right? Uh, but have you ever seen this rooted in an argument because we don't follow every law in the Old Testament? You guys ever heard that before? I've heard it a lot, right? So uh, people will say things like, you know, well, you say you don't believe in gay marriage because of Leviticus 20 or something like that, but you don't think it's a sin for a Christian to have a tattoo, and I've seen you eat shrimp. It was disgusting to watch and whatever, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, I've heard it a lot, and it's kind of popular out there in the culture. There's a whole episode of The West Wing where uh, President Bartlett in The West Wing sort of takes down a Christian fundamentalist by quoting all sorts of quotes from Leviticus that they didn't follow. Um, and then there are also um, pop more recent and popular books that were written. Uh, one's a, a book called A Year of Living Biblically or something like that where somebody tries to, quote, take the Bible literally um, and, uh, and live out every command, every law of the Bible, these different kinds of things. And once again, all of the problem with all these is they don't take the Bible on the Bible's terms. And they certainly don't take the Bible on Christian terms to understand what the Scripture teaches about itself. So I think what happens a lot, and I've noticed even as a pastor... I just want to make sure. This will be recorded and be online later. I wanted to make sure I'd hit record uh, before we got in the meat of what we're talking about. But I've noticed as a pastor um, that oftentimes uh, even Christians don't know how to answer those questions. I don't know what to really say when somebody says, well, why are you willing to wear a shirt that's woven out of two, fat, two different kinds of fabrics? Or why are you willing to do this? Or why are you willing to do that? 
uh, why do you still think that some laws apply but others don't? Is it just the ones you wish would apply? And we say, well, I mean, obviously that's not the case. Most of us would like to get rid of all of them, you know, in our hearts. And uh, so that's not the case. So why? What, why do we obey the ones we obey? Why do we not obey the others? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? How do we think through these things as Christians? So let me just say this to you as a, as a, um, as a uh, disclaimer. Don't get angry until we're done. Okay? <laughs> so don't, you know... Did he just say, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? You know, I think we obey them, you know, is what we do with them. Uh, now, don't get angry until we're done. Let's hear this out. Let's follow the argument. Let's see what Paul says. And frankly, if you think about it, this is what a lot of Paul's detractors are essentially saying. What did he say about my law? What, what did he say about that precious gift that's been given? Has Paul never read the 119th Psalm that's a hymn of praise to God? For what? For his law? Well, We've got to think through these things. We've got to understand these things. One approach to the law that I find the second most compelling behind what I'm going to, what I'm going to argue for tonight is um, a, a classic approach where the law's divided into sort of three sections. And, and basically, this is a classic sort of approach that was born out of the Reformation. And basically... Uh, they say that there are three sections of the law. The moral law, which is mo most primarily sort of understood to be the Ten Commandments, those moral commands of God. And then the ceremonial law, which are the laws that govern the different ceremonies that happen all throughout the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, you can tell there's a lot of ceremonies in the Old Testament. And, and then furthermore, th those include the cleanliness laws, things like that, those sorts of laws. And then the third would be civic laws. In other words, we, do, we no longer live in a theocracy. We, we don't live in uh, biblical Israel where we are governed directly by the law of God. Those would be the civic laws that are present in the Old Testament that help govern Israel's life as a people. So that position on the law says essentially that uh, Christians are only required to obey the moral laws of the Old Testament. Here, here's my only problem with that. Even though I think this kind of, I think these theologians call this the tripartite division of the law. Um, I, I'm not opposed to understanding and thinking about the law that way. In fact, I think they're pretty helpful categories in lots of ways. The Mosaic Law in particular, I think they're really helpful categories. The problem is, like a lot of helpful categories that we sort of impose on the Bible, one, those categories aren't really spelled out in the Scriptures. You don't have... Moses didn't say, now this is the moral law of God. Now let's turn to the ceremonial law of God, right? In fact, they're all sort of, sort of mixed together there. It's a mixed bag. The, the Bible never really delineates these three things. And on top of that, even in the New Testament, the, the whole of the Mosaic law seems to be talked about as a totality. In fact, doesn't James say, if you disobey one part of the law, you've disobeyed it all. Right? So, so the law is almost always understood in terms of a totality. It's really not divided out. And so it's really hard to take some of the New Testament texts that are given and help us to understand um, which ones we obey and we don't based on these categories. I don't think it's helpful in that respect. So that's one approach. But I'm going to tell you what the most common approach is. It's confusion. Um, most of us, myself included, for, for a huge chunk of my life, just don't really have a principle for how to deal with that. 
And so we basically just either say, well, God always means that, or, or well, it's the New Testament now, it's the New Covenant now, we can eat all the pork we want, and that's about as far as we get, right? We just don't have a whole lot of clarity on why. Why is that? And again, maybe it wouldn't be as big of a deal, um, except for the fact that holiness matters. And so we don't ever want to uh, disobey something God's told us to obey. Holiness matters. And on top of that, as I've already mentioned, there are a lot of attacks on our faith rooted in the fact that we seem inconsistent on the law. By and large, though, before we go further, let me just say, I think Christian people in most churches and most Christians I know really do what I think the Bible teaches. I, I think we really obey the law the way the Scripture teaches us to. I don't, I don't think there are glaring parts of the law that we're omitting. So I'm not going to come here tonight and say, and starting next week, we'll be gathering on Saturday uh, to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? I, you know, don't, don't worry. I just, I've come out of my study a new man. And uh, anyway, that's, that's not the case at all. And, uh, but I do think we can be confused about this. I think we need to have some background on what we're talking about. Again, let me just remind you for clarity's sake, we're not talking about uh, a sort of classic discussion in Christian theology, um, which is uh, antinomianism versus legalism. We'll talk about that as we study, uh, as we study Galatians. Antinomianism is nomos means law, so in Greek. So antinomianism is just this view that we're anti-command. We're against command. So throughout church history, there have been people who basically said, do whatever you want and just have faith and you'll be fine. So you can get to a sort of licentiousness and a sort of, of uh, libertarianism when it comes to obedience to God that is sub-Christian and really unhelpful. But on the other side, of course, we all know legalists. We're more familiar with those folks than anybody. Uh, and legalism can become so preoccupied with the commands and demands of God that they start to think that we can earn favor with the Lord. So as Christians, as we start to reckon with what grace-based obedience looks, with, looks like in our hearts, that's a conversation that needs to be had. It's not exactly what we're talking about tonight. Tonight what we're talking about is how does the Mosaic law, how does it apply? That is the law that's given to Moses to sign on for God's people to live by. How does it apply to Christians today? So that's what we're thinking about. Let me ask you this question, and you can answer it or not, but what is the focus of the Old Testament? Think about that. When you think Old Testament, what word pops in your mind first? I would guess, I don't know, how many... Don't answer. You don't have to answer. But do most of you think about the law when you think about the Old Testament? I, is that how many of you immediately go to law, right? You think about the Old Testament and immediately we start thinking about rules. In fact, or, or wrath. That's another thing. In fact, there are these kind of, uh, there's even like little sayings people have. I might go Old Testament on them. You know? <laughs> Um, or, you know, sometimes we'll even say about legalists, he's kind of an Old Testament kind of guy. You know, he's more into the Old Testament than the New. But I don't know if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, but if I had to choose, if I was doing this on my own, I had to choose, like, when I get to heaven, I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I have to choose what I want to be judged by. Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, Ten Commandments, please. Right? Give me the Ten Commandments. Um, there, I, get, I might have a sporting chance, as Jerry Clower would say, at the Ten Commandments. I'm hopeless on the Sermon on the Mount. 
on my own, in my flesh, right? So, um, so most of us, when we think about the Old Testament, really, and this is myself included, and, and even still I'm, I'm trying to break myself from this, we see the law as the fundamental focus or the locus of the Old Testament. That the logical sort of center of the Old Testament is the law given at Sinai. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's how the Lord Jesus read the Old Testament. I know it's not how Paul read the Old Testament. I don't think it's how any of the apostles taught or read the Old Testament. The fundamental center of the Old Testament, when you think Old Testament, instead of going straight to law, I think you should go straight to promises. The promises of God to Abraham are the center of the Old Testament. Without the promises that God made to Abraham, without God's promises, there would be no law. In fact, the point of the law is to kind of codify these promises, this covenant that God had began with Abraham and continued with Moses. Well, made with Abraham. I mean, made with, I would argue, all right, I would argue that the covenant structure began with Adam. God meets his chosen appointed man. I think, I think that some of the language and imagery that's used in the book of Genesis seems to indicate that you know, four rivers are flowing down, these sorts of things, that Eden seemed to be some sort of a mountain setting or at least an elevated setting. So anytime the covenant's happening, typically in the Old Testament, you have God meeting with his chosen man or his, his uh, chosen mediator, and, and he is making promises there with them. I think this begins with Adam. This certainly happens with Noah. This certainly happens with Abraham. And then it certainly happens um, with Moses. Uh, David is God's king, recipient of his promises on the citadel in Jerusalem, right? That's this new Eden from which all the glory of God is to, should spread over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. So you see this imagery happening with all the covenants. And all of the covenants are fundamentally, though, rooted in God's promises. God's made a promise to Adam um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That he would redeem through the seed of Adam. Paul makes a lot of hay out of that in the book of Galatians. Uh, and particularly chapter 3, which we're going to look at here in just a moment. So I'm going to show you that this is true in the Bible. Um, it's important to do that, I think. But he makes this promise. And then he promises that a seed of Adam and Eve would crush the head of the serpent. It's a promise that things would be made right. When Noah was born, his father said this is the one who will deliver us from our toil. So God's people understood that God was making promises. And then after this wrath happens, this wrath is poured out. Noah's not the one that's going to deliver everyone. In fact, he winds up uh, being a speck of hope in the midst of this sea of wrath. And then what happens then when God makes his covenant, remakes his covenant with Noah? Well, God has called the earth back out of a formless and void sea. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Genesis 1, right? Where God calls the land out of this tohu vabohu, which means formless and void, sea. And then God meets with Noah on this mountain to make this covenant. And if you read there in Genesis 9, you can see the way that the language that God uses with Noah is reminiscent of the language which he used with Adam, and yet it's changed some. He talks about the image of God, but he talks about it as a prohibition for murder. 
He talks about the uh, lordship that Noah and humans have over animals, but now at this point it's a lordship of fear where they're fearful. And then after God has remade the earth and appointed a new man uh, through which he's going to bless the world and who he's made these promises to, what does Noah do? Well, he plants a garden, doesn't he? And then he takes the fruit of that garden and he sins with it. He gets drunk in this, in this particular setting, yet nonetheless, it's really similar to the story of Adam. And I think we can see then there the way sin is still at work um, through Noah. Well, then God raises up Abraham. He raises him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he makes promises to Abraham, and he cuts a covenant with Abraham, and we see the way that God is working through Abraham to fulfill that promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And let's pick up here with Paul. And I've got to look out when I look down so I don't deafen everyone. Book of Galatians. Chapter 3, if you have a Bible, it be worth opening there. Notice what Paul says. Uh, beginning verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Okay, so... Um, I think we all know this. You learn this on the playground, right? You just don't go back on a deal. You know, once you make a deal, you don't go back on it. Well, that's the deal. Now the promises, verse 16, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now notice what Paul's doing. And if you, if you, if you want to learn more, I've got a paper on my computer about this passage. I can talk to you about, I think, I think Paul's interpreting this correctly. Some scholars say that he's making a stretch here. Um, one thing to bear in mind, he's, he's really talking about several passages from Genesis all at once. But he says it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, what Paul is arguing is that the promises that God made to Abraham were for, to, and through Jesus Christ. His seed, Jesus you see that seed language also is picking Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 back up. The seed of Adam or the seed of Eve that would one day crush the head of the serpent. Paul's picking that language up from the book of Genesis and helping us see Christ as the fulfillment of the promises that God made. But notice what he says there. This is what I mean. Thank you, Paul. We'd like to know. This is what I mean. The law, that is the Mosaic Covenant, Right? The law given at Sinai. What does he say next? Which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, I want you to know that the argument that Paul's making, I think, shows and demonstrates the way that the national charter of the people of God, we call Israel, was not the Mosaic law, it was the promises that God made to them through Abraham. This is the fundamental focus of the Old Testament. Now, as a result of that covenant, God gave them a law to govern their life. 
Paul later calls it a tutor. And I don't want to steal all my thunder for later in the sermon series, but he calls it a governor, a tutor that they were to live under until Christ came. But here's the reality. I want you to see this. The promises of God to Abraham in particular that are a fulfillment of the promises He made to Adam and to Noah and that are the the subsequent promises that He made through Moses and David and then also the promise of the new covenant. All, all of those promises um, are the fundamental focus of the Old Testament. But the law came along, and Paul tries to, is explaining here in the book of Galatians, the law came to help prepare God's people for the coming of their Messiah. And yet what wound up happening is they became so preoccupied with the law, right? That's what the Pharisees did. In fact, we'll read from Matthew 5 here in just a moment when Jesus starts talking about the law. And one of the things he says about the law, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Wouldn't you like to be a Pharisee? (laughs) Man, talk about a, hey, you better obey the law. All they did was obey the law. Paul talks about that. All they cared about was obeying the law. And yet Jesus says your righteousness and your understanding of the law has to exceed that of the Pharisees. It's because what happened is God's people lost sight of the fact that God made promises and it's by grace through faith in the promises that they're accepted into God's kingdom, that they're accepted as God's people, and that their obedience to the law should be born out of who they are as God's people. They missed it. They got it upside down, right? That it's who we are in the flesh and what we can do in the flesh and what we can do by the law and the fact that we're circumcised and the fact that we're descended from Abraham. That's what matters most. That's what God's people saw. They missed it. They lost it. Because when Jesus actually showed up, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. They got so mad they wanted to stone him. Right? You're not yet 40 years old, and yet you claim to have seen Abraham. Right? When Jesus shows up, when new wine actually shows up, they're so desperate to put in old wineskins, it maddens them to the point of being ravenous for murder. They want to kill him. And it's precisely because they missed that the focus of what God had done for them was his promises. God made promises. So when we move then and we start to understand the law like that, I like to understand it like this. There's a bedrock of promises that runs through the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, God made promises in the Old Testament and kept them through Christ in the New Testament. And then on top of those promises, at different times and in different ways, God spoke to His people and brought them over time in different ways related to the promises that He made. God trained them and prepared them for the coming of the Messiah. And in images and other ways, God prepared all of us for the coming of the Messiah. So think about the law, not as the primary part of the Old Testament. Think of the promises as the primary part of the Old Testament. And then the law then rides on top of the promises for a season as a tutor, as a guide to help prepare God's people and help God's people understand what it means to live as God's people. Now, they should have obeyed it. And, and the scripture over and over and over again says, if you really believed, if you really believed God's promises, if you really trusted the Lord, if you really would seek my face, and turn, you would obey the law. The same thing I say to you every Sunday, right? If you really believe that you're sons and daughters of God, you would obey this. But I would never say, God forbid that I ever say, if you don't obey this, God won't love you. No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't dare say that. And God wouldn't say that to His people either. His love was rooted in His own grace. 
and the promises that he gave through Abraham, not because they were so good, it's reiterated over and over and over again in the Old Testament, not because they were so good, but because God chose them as his people. And that's the point. God made promises based on his grace and nothing else. Okay, so the focus or the locus of the Old Testament is not the law. The law is important. The law matters. It's essential. And for us to understand the Bible, we need to understand the Mosaic Law. You should read Leviticus. Uh, you should read the whole Pentateuch. It's important to read it, but it's so important to read it understanding that it's rooted in the promises of God. So when you think Old Testament, think promise. Okay? And I think then now, when we move to the New Testament, it helps us see the continuity that's there between the Old and New Testament. So as we progress here, I, I want to help us think about continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. Okay? There's both. There's both. You all understand what I mean when I say continuity and discontinuity. There's a, 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 a fundamental shared reality that God made promises to Abraham and Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises and that's true from Genesis to Revelation. But at the same time, when Jesus came into the world, something actually changed. Something actually happened for the people of God. And you see the sort of tremor effects or the after effects of this huge shock to the system of God's economy all throughout the Gospels and especially in the book of Acts. So you'll see the Gospel come to a place uh, where there are uh, believing Jews who are faithful Jews who are waiting on the Messiah, but they have not yet heard the gospel. The gospel comes to them, they hear it, they believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Even though they believed a Messiah was coming, they didn't know it was Jesus. So this is what Tom, Tom Schreiner calls uh, redemptive historical time warp. You can see the transition happen in the book of Acts. It's a beautiful testimony of the way the gospel set God's believing people free who've been waiting for so long. But you also see the way that God moving was a tremor and, an, and a shock to the system of unbelieving Israel. People, people like the Pharisees, who Jesus called a brood of vipers. That's his words, not mine, right? Who didn't have faith. In fact, they had such the opposite of faith. They hated God. How do we know they hated God? They killed him. They murdered the Son of God. Their religion, their preoccupation with flesh-based religion led them to become murderous. It's a horrible thing to see, but we also see the way that others who longed to see Jesus, who were children of Abraham by faith, looking forward to the coming Messiah, when they heard about Jesus, immediately they believed, right? Immediately they believed, they were saved, and immediately they received the Holy Spirit. So there's continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. And you might say, well, how would you know whether someone was, at the, at the moment Jesus came into the world and died and was raised from the dead, how would you know whether someone was a, a, a Jewish person who trusted God by faith or a Jewish person who was trusting in their flesh to live by the law? I'll tell you how. Whether they believe in Jesus or not. If you really are looking for the Messiah and He comes, you'll, you'll trust Him and believe Him. If you think that salvation comes through obeying the law and you, a Messiah comes, He's messing the deal you've got going. You know, they had a lot to lose, these Pharisees did, by the gospel. So there's discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. You see this back up a little bit in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's quoting the Old Testament there. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. When Jesus came, something changed. Something actually changed. And, and so rather than looking to the law, now all along, God's people should have been looking to promises. They should have been looking to the promise and seeing the law for what it was, a God and a tutor. But because they tried to live by the law exclusively and not by faith, and God, you know, you see this like in Isaiah when God says, I'm sickened by your sacrifices. What I desire is obedience, these sorts of things. It, he's longing for them to have a change of heart by faith. I promise your heart is only changed by faith. Paul's showing there is discontinuity here. But we also recognize there's continuity. We can't talk about law and gospel or law and grace unless we look at what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to what he says. So, so you're going to see some continuity here even between the law and the New Testament. Notice what Jesus says. He says, do not think, this is verses 17 through 20 in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now we're going to spend a little more time with this passage, but when I was in college, uh, we had a professor and Woody had this, this guy too. Woody and I both went to University of Mobile and Southern Seminary. But we were there in different epochs of time. We, we, we crossed each other, on, literally on I-65, a few times, I think, and uh, moving, moving back and forth to Mobile and Louisville and different places. But we didn't meet until he, until he interviewed for the job here. Um, but we both had a, we have a, a lot of shared experiences in the sense that we both went to some of the same schools and had some of the same professors. And one we talk about all the time is Dr. Dale Yance, who's now with the Lord. Uh, Dr. Yance was brilliant. He taught us Greek in college, and he used to make drive me crazy. Because we would say, you know, Dr. Yance, you know, in Greek you have to memorize these declensions. It's these big charts of the way verbs change in different contexts and everything else. And wake up, we're done talking about Greek. But anyway, and we would say, uh, um, we would say, Dr. Yance, you know, how do you memorize these declensions? And he would say, boys, here's all you have to do. You just study it so much and look at it so much that when you're laying in bed at night, you can close your eyes and just see it on the back of your eyelids. And we said, nobody can do that but you, Dr. Yance. You must have a, you've got a photographic memory. That is not helpful at all. Like, I need some help. I'm drowning here. Nonetheless, Dr. Yance was a brilliant man and godly man, and we would talk to him about the law, and, and he was talking about this one day, and so he said, Jesus fulfilled the law, and the word fulfilled, he, he wrote it up on the whiteboard, and Guys were raising their hands and women were raising their hands. They would say, so like, what about the Ten Commandments? And Dr. Yance would underline it and say, fulfilled. And somebody would say, right, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but don't you feel like this would, fulfilled. And, uh, okay, Dr. Yance, we get that it's fulfilled, but help me understand what that means. Like, for example, with Leviticus 20, with home, fulfilled. I mean, he just really just hammered it home. So anytime I read this passage, I think, Fulfilled. Fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. But I'm glad he did it. 
Because it's probably taken me now 15, 16, 17 years to understand what fulfilled means. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was not anti-law, nor was Paul anti-law. People misunderstand Paul. No more than James was pro-works and not pro-faith. Misunderstand the way these things all work together. That's not the point. Jesus says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are some people who sort of want to argue and say, uh, well, you know, that has to mean then that the law stands forever and it has to apply to Christians all the time. But Jesus is trying to help his people understand that though he's fulfilled the law, that doesn't make us anti-law. And some of you may want to argue that even now, to which I would say, well, um, there are a lot of buildings here we'll have to tear down because they have leprous walls. Or they don't now, but they have in the past. And we didn't tear them down and burn them down. We didn't go through the law to deal with the, not literal leprosy, right? But there's mold in the walls, and that's what the Bible would call a leprous wall. Some of you probably, uh, at some, some way or another, are unclean here tonight according to the law. We certainly don't think that we need to start sacrificing. You know, there are some parts of the law that if I tried to live them out here, I hope I would lose my job. For example, if I tried to sacrifice a Paschal lamb at the Passover, I sure hope you would fire me. Right? Why? Because Jesus is our Paschal lamb. We, there, there are some parts of the Old Testament law that are so clearly fulfilled in Christ that we know, I mean, we know that it can't mean that we're still to be doing that. So what is Jesus saying? I think He's saying... Some of the effect of when he's saying this is that the law will always be applicable in some way for God's people. It will always be useful. It will always be helpful. It is God's word. And on top of that, when he's talking about until all is accomplished, I think some of that as well is rooted in his death and his resurrection. That, that we are not meant to downplay the law. So what would be easy for me as a Christian preacher to do is to get up here and say, aren't you thankful we're under grace? And aren't, isn't, the, isn't the law ridiculous? Aren't you glad we don't have to do all that silly stuff? No, the, the law is a reflection of the heart of God. It's not, none of it's silly. None of it's silly. We may not understand it, but none of it's silly. It was all there for a purpose and it's a reflection of the heart of God. And Jesus fulfilled every part of the law which applied to him. Now, obviously, there are some parts of the law that Jesus didn't fulfill because he never sinned. There are some parts of the law that only apply to women. There are some parts of the law that only apply to married people. Jesus didn't fulfill all that, but he, he lived out the law with perfect righteousness. It's another sign and another, another way that we see that God is most concerned with honoring him with our lives. A whole life devoted to holiness and Christ-likeness. Notice what he says, though. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus cannot just merely be talking about doing a better job of keeping the law, because I promise you can't do a better job of keeping the law than the Pharisees. No, he, he starts to define his view of the law. I would encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins to demonstrate and to show what it means 
to live our faith out. Here's the reality. There's continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament, but here's the reality. Every last jot and tittle of the law and every single aspect of the promises of God find their yes and amen and their total fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Much like almost everything in the Christian life when we're confused or we have a limited understanding or we struggle with it or whatever else, is because we haven't focused on Christ enough. And the reality is that the way that all of the Bible comes together is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's go back. Let's look at three, Galatians 3, 15 through 18 one more time. So he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promise was, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. This is important. This is important. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that all of God's promises are not primarily fulfilled through the people of God, through Israel as a nation. It's exactly what he's saying here. He says, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to, to, to Abraham by a promise. And what Paul is arguing is that that promise is fulfilled in Christ. And what we all know is that Jesus says the law was fulfilled in him, not abolished. The law stands forever. God's righteousness stands forever. But the reality is that in Christ, he was our righteousness and he gives it to us. So here, here's, here's, let's get practical. Let's get practical and then we'll open up for questions. For the Mosaic Law and the Christian, we have to ask the question, what, what do we do with it now in our lives if this is the case? For, first of all, I think all of the law, every command of God in the Old Testament, especially the Mosaic Law. Let me, let me back that up. Every command of God in the Mosaic Law is fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, I do not believe that the Old Testament law in and of itself is binding on Christians. So when people say something to you like, well, why do you believe the Ten Commandments and believe you should obey Exodus 20, but you don't think you should obey Leviticus 22? Uh, my answer would be, I'm not primarily obeying either of those texts. I'm, I believe Jesus fulfilled both of those texts for me. And they say, oh, so you don't obey God? You don't believe that you should obey the commands of God? No, I absolutely think we should obey the commands of God. What I would say is those laws that are found in the Mosaic Law that are then repeated or reiterated in the New Testament are binding on Christians. They, they are a law for Christians that we must do. them. Now, we've, we've got a whole other conversation to have about what our sanctification is rooted in, Right? We don't get saved by grace through faith and then do the rest on our own. No, that law then is written on our hearts. I think when James talks about the royal law in the book of James, I don't think he's talking about the Old Testament law. I think he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I think he's talking about the law of Christ. I think he's talking about that which is binding on Christians. You, you can see this all through Acts, you see this all through Galatians, the way 
that from time to time the apostles will say, right, but do this or do that. So for example, um, I, don't know, I don't know where you guys are on this, but for example, I don't eat blood as food. Okay? Now, this is going to get weird here for a second. I don't eat blood as food. That's because after the Jerusalem Council, um, the apostles encouraged Paul and Timothy and the others to refrain from eating blood. Now, I do eat medium rare steak because the red juice in your steak is not blood. Okay? It's meat juice. And I think that's fine. I think that's fine to eat. Okay? It, it, you, you have never eaten a bloody steak unless you ate it raw in the field and didn't drain the blood out of it. Uh, in, in fact, what I would argue is that the meat that we have today is probably more kosher by actual kosher, non-kosher meat today is probably more as, as kosher, if not more because of modern butchering practices than ancient meat would have been. Maybe even the meat our Lord ate. But I think what the Bible's prohibiting, though, is eating blood as food. Now, I think a Christian in good conscience who loves a good boudin noir or something like that, blood pudding or something like that, if you or British or something, uh, and you like blood as food, um, I think you could make an argument that just in the same way that after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Timothy was circumcised, just not to give offense to people, that he was asking the same thing of Christians not to eat blood as food. Now, I don't really enjoy blood as food, so it's kind of easy for me to do, um, but I do love a medium rare steak, and I used to think that, that might be blood, but now I've learned better. But I, I want us to make sure. Why? Because life is in the blood, right? I think it's a way that we can honor. We're so divorced. I'm going to write on this soon. But um, we're so divorced from what happens for us to have meat. We won't get into all that tonight. But it's a good thing, right, to have an honor and a respect for blood. Um, because the Bible says a life is in the blood. So for me, one of the ways I do that, one of the ways I try to keep my mind fixed on the fact something had to die for me to eat this food. Um, that I, I want to remember that we honor blood and I honor the life of an animal by not eating its blood as food. And I, I think that's why for me, I, I try to do that out of faith. You may eat boudin noir in faith and have a different, and that's okay, right? But, but I per, personally don't see that as a, uh, I see that as a binding commandment on me, but not, for example, a prohibition on shellfish. Because lots of reasons. One is in the book of Acts when Peter's told to kill and eat. There's nothing that's unclean which God has called clean. I think that's another way that we see the way God's calling all animals that we can eat as clean animals. Um, that there's no animal we can't eat. Um, there's a reason, though, in lots of times in pagan cultures that they eat things that other, especially Jewish culture, wouldn't eat. It's because of God's law. But I, I'll just say, I think only that which is repeated or upheld in the New Testament. So by and large, we live like that. Nine out of ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament. You know which one isn't? The Sabbath commandment. Right? And I know y'all broke the Sabbath yesterday. <laughs> I saw, and, and I think you're honoring the Lord's day today. I think that's what Christians should do. I think there's a I have friends who are very, have a very high view, very strict view of the Lord's day. I have friends with a more free view of the Lord's day. I'm somewhere in the middle. My view's on the Lord's day. But nonetheless, we, we celebrate the Lord's day and not the Sabbath because we believe that, the, that Jesus fulfilled the law. All nine out of ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament, as well as the heavy matters of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of the whole law. And then Jesus elaborates on it, makes it even harder to live by than the ten commandments would have been, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. 
Every jot and tittle, second of all, of the law is fulfilled in Christ. But third of all, just because something is fulfilled doesn't mean it's not useful. It doesn't mean that we, we're not Marcionites. We don't write the Old Testament out of our Bibles. No, it's there to reveal to us the heart of God. This is why Jesus tells us to continue to uphold the law in Matthew 5. Because the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, is useful in several ways. Let me just mention a few. One, in demonstrating the heart of God. I want to encourage you to dive deep into the law of Moses to figure out what you can learn about the heart of God from what He taught His people in the law. Instead of just being, who cares how, what kind of hoof an animal has or whatever, you know, whatever kind of frustration you have when you read Leviticus. My goodness, you know, goodness gracious, leprous walls and this and that. No, instead, try to figure out what, what's true about the heart of God from this. As you read the law, it's meant to help you, and we'll talk about this in a sermon later, it's meant to help reveal your sinfulness. Right? Use it for that. It's a good tool to help you see your sin in the ways you don't line up with what God's asked you to do. I think reading the law, I, I think this is a simple way, makes us thankful for grace, doesn't it? I can't even memorize all of them, much less live by them all. I saw an episode of King of the Hill one time and Hank had all these uh, rules for his niece and finally she said, Uncle Hank, God's a lot more important than you do and he's, you are and he's only got ten rules, you know? I mean, I'm thankful for grace. Aren't you so thankful when you read the law? You know, Woody and I were talking earlier uh, this afternoon. Woody was talking about, you may not know this, there are kosher appliances. Right? Where the oven turns on, beginning the Sabbath and turns off at the end because you can't turn an oven on unless you're working. Can you imagine living under the law like that? There are apartment buildings in New York that are pre- predominantly inhabited by Jewish people. And I'm sure this is true in Israel as well where the uh, elevator on Sundays has kosher mode. And you, it's set to stop at every floor because pushing an elevator button is considered work on the Sabbath. Now think about, think about that. Aren't you thankful for grace when you start to think about the law? As you read the Old Testament, as you read the Mosaic Law, I would seriously just think through, imagine if you had to live like this. But no, you've, you've got a new way, a better way, to learn about God's holiness. It's by the Holy Spirit you've been given in your heart. It's a good thing that God's done for us. There, there is a change. Something has happened. And finally, the law is meant to push us to Christ. Aren't you thankful not only that you don't have to live that way, but that Jesus did for you? That he, that he fulfilled the law? That He took God's wrath? That we all deserve for disobeying God? And that we have grace through Christ. It's meant to point you to Jesus. Every single part of the Bible is meant to point you to Jesus. Let the law do that as well. Finally, let me, let me just say a word. This is, I think some of us sometimes when we think, well, man, if I don't have a law, what am I supposed to do? Are you trying to say that you don't think holiness matters? or what? No, no, no. No, no, no. The opposite. The opposite is true. The, the old, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But the Lord Jesus Christ says unto you, what? If you so much as look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say unto you, the Lord Jesus says, if you call someone a fool, right? You're guilty of murder and in danger of the fires of hell. Now think about this. Think about what this means. Obedience is no longer rooted in trying to stick to the letter of the law. Obedience is rooted in the fact that you have been adopted as sons. Adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, 
the fair used to come to Boaz. And my dad did not want to take me to the fair. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with going to the fair. I'm not judging any of you fairgoers here, okay? But I'm just going to tell you the story like it happened. And if it upsets you, I'm sorry, but this is the truth. We'd ride by the fair, and I would say, Dad, I really want to go to the fair. Can we please go to the fair and go ride these rides? And my dad would say, we're not going to the fair. We're Alexander's. I still don't know what that means. <laughs> but that was just the, that's just what I was told. We don't go to the fair. We're Alexander's. You know, it's not like we're the classiest people on earth or something like that. But he just didn't want to go to the fair, so that was the answer. There's some things we don't do because we're Christians. We belong to God. We're sons and daughters of God. We're part of God's family. There are things we don't do. Oh, I use that, by the way, on all kinds of things now. We don't do that. We're Alexanders. I don't know what it means, but it works. Well, I, I believe, and I think the New Testament teaches, sonship-driven obedience to the Word of Christ, the whole of the Word of God, as it's revealed to us through the Gospel, and understood in light of the Gospel, Sonship-driven obedience to the Word of Christ by grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, that is so much harder to do in the flesh. But you can't do any of it in the flesh, can you? Isn't it good that by the Spirit, we have a Spirit inside us that cries out on our behalf, Abba, Father. We've been given a Spirit of adoption. We've been called to put off those old works. And we've been called to put on obedience by grace through faith in Christ. That's how Christians obey. And we so badly want to go back to a law. We so badly want do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. We so badly want things that are of actually no power against the flesh, the Bible says. But the reality is if you want to see your flesh overcome, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to obey God, and I hope you do, the way to do it is in sonship-driven obedience to the Word of Christ by grace through faith. That's what the New Testament teaches and that's what I commend to you tonight. All right. That's what I have. And that's a lot to process. But does anybody have any questions so we can try to make this more clear? Just know I've already planned. Everything you ask, I'm going to say, fulfilled. <laughs> fulfilled. Any questions? Here are my layers of priority. First, we'll do anything about tonight. It's quiet for a while. Anything about Galatians? Quiet for a while. Any question you have? It's quiet after that. Grab a piece, another piece of cheesecake, hang out, have some more coffee, or go home. It's up to y'all. This is your time. Any questions at all? You cleared up something for me. I've always thought. When Christ said you're, uh, you've got to exceed the Pharisee, and I thought he was setting the bar kind of low. <laughs> but when you look at it like they're keeping the law and you've got to exceed that, which is impossible. Yeah. Uh, makes a lot of sense. That's, that's why I, I interpret that text that way, right, Dick? Because they were the best law keepers. I mean, Paul talks about what a good law keeper he was. You know, and he says, if I need to boast in the flesh, I can boast in the flesh. Second Corinthians. 
Right? I can boast in the flesh. I kept the law to a T. In fact, I was so passionate about the law, I opposed these people who hated the law, supposedly in his mind, right? So the fact that that, sent, that passage there from our Lord, Matthew 5, begins with, I fulfilled the law, and ends with, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. It's hard for me to believe that what Jesus is doing is just re-yoking his people with the law all over again. It just doesn't make sense in the context. So I appreciate you saying that. It wasn't in fact righteous, but that was their righteousness. That was all they had. Yep. And you know, Jesus associates them with their fathers who oppressed the prophets and hated the prophets. And you know why they hated the prophets? Because they said the same thing about their fathers as Jesus said about them. Right? I mean, Isaiah is brutal. I don't know if you guys have doesn't much reading in Isaiah, but he is brutal against people who have an outward show of religion, but their hearts aren't really there. All the prophets are. All the prophets are. That's why God's people got toted off, you know? Divorced, it seemed, from his promises in his land. It's another, it's another night. Any other questions or thoughts? Oh, yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, we, yeah, that's the elephant in the room, you know, is like uh, um, homosexual relationships, gay marriage, abortion, sort of, in some ways. Um, and, um, um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I like to just say something like, well, how do you understand the law? Right? And, and, Another thing people say all the time, no, well, I wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, that's a good question because, I mean, you can't say, here's an MP3 of my pastor. You know, if you need, you know, you do this or melatonin or whatever. Uh, I, I would say like, um, I would say something like, here's what you need to understand. Another thing I get is what you, you say biblical marriage. You know, what is, maybe you read the Bible, you know, and uh there's some weird marriage stuff in there, right, guys? You know, even Abraham. We just got through with Genesis. There's a lot of bad marriage stuff in, in Genesis. Um, I say a couple things. One is I say, well, you know, we're Christians. And the Bible says, and Jesus says he fulfilled the law, right? So I believe that any law that Jesus or the New Testament brings back up is requirement for me to be obedient to Jesus. And Paul really clearly in Romans chapter 1 echoes that which is in the Old Testament law. And I would say something like it's really clear that that then is a revelation of the heart of God from Genesis to Revelation that marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman and that any aberration from that is a sin before the Lord. And our heart as Christians is to see every human being flourish, know God and live the life that He meant for them to live. And I don't think you can do that apart from living the way God asked you to live. Only way to do that, I think, it's not because I'm so good, you know. Only way I think I know to do that is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because my gay friends and, and family members and others who have chosen a homosexual lifestyle, they're no less righteous than I am apart from Christ. I answer it something, something like that. I say, you know, I'm not really into all the big culture war debates. I just want you and others to know about who Jesus is. And on top of that, though, I do think it's important that we do the best job as a society as we can 
to honor the Lord in all that we do. So if somebody presses me on like gay marriage, for example, I say, well, um, I don't think we have the right to define something God created. You know, I think the government regulates it, but the government doesn't have a right to define it. It was received by us, you know. And um, so I would say something like that. And then somebody says, well, you don't really believe in, you know, have you read, seen all these marriages in the Bible or whatever? And then I say, well, something you need to know about the Bible is that just because it describes something doesn't mean it prescribes something. You've heard me say this a lot. Not everything the Bible describes is something it prescribes. And I say, if, if the Bible was some Pollyanna book, if it was a Thomas Kincaid painting in words, you know, and everything looks perfect and the light's shining perfectly, not, nothing wrong, you know, nothing against Thomas Kincaid, but I'm just saying it looks perfect and beautiful and nice and sweet. Well, that's not what your house looks like. I've been by it, you know. And uh, that's not what anybody's house looks like. You know, it's not the way the world looks. That's not what... The Bible, if, as I said, if the Bible was this saccharine, sweet, Pollyanna book, you'd say, well, that's not what the world's like. Why would I believe that? You know, you people are clueless. You can't have it both ways. So I just say, the Bible, thankfully, describes the world as it is. You know, the Bible, warts and all, from our biggest heroes to our biggest villains, it gives us a stark reality of their sins and their shortcomings and their failings and everything else. All, but if you'll notice, there's only one person in the whole book that has a totally clean rap sheet. That's Jesus. So, you know, I would say I would say something like that. Is that helpful at all? I was wondering. Um, I've heard I'm not really educated in a lot of stuff. But I'm a bit hard. My mind's too small. <laughs> the progressives, a lot of them have just thrown out the Old Testament. Said it's not relevant to the New Testament. And I'm thinking, how can they get that? Yeah. Well, and I'll just say, Nan's asking a little bit about, um, oh, the last question I answered, somebody asked, could, we eva- uh, could I elaborate? This is for the people that are listening. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> um, Wayne, a moment ago, asked, you know, what would we say to somebody who, again, critiques us for not obeying every law in the Old Testament? So that was the answer for that. This ne- last question was, what about like progressive Christians? Um, and I like that. Ter- I think it's my favorite term. Um, for folks, because I think when you say liberal or conservative Christians, it, I think those terms are so loaded with politics that we miss some of it. So I think progressive. So um, someone asked, Nan asked if progressive, a lot of progressive Christians seem to throw out, throw out, just throw out the Old Testament. And um, how do they do that? Well, I wish they would just throw out the Old Testament. They've thrown out a lot of the new also, right? So um, there is a sort of progressive movement that's really been happening since about the um, 18th century. So since the 1700s, the father of sort of modern progressive theology or modern liberal theology is a guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher. It's a great name. And uh, he sounds like a progressive, doesn't he? Friedrich Schleiermacher. And, and so he basically divorced the idea that to be a Christian or to have some sort of a spiritual life as a Christian, he divorced that idea from the reality that you also would need to believe that the stuff in the Bible actually happened. Okay? So that's progressivism at its heart. Progressive theology or liberal theology, however you want to look at it, basically starts with the premise that you can have a Christian spirituality without a truthful Bible. Okay? So it, there's all sorts of ways that works. Um, it started with this sort of German higher criticism when people started doing more intense sort of critical studies of the, the Old Testament. It started to find some challenges there, and there, there are challenges, right? And 
when they saw those challenges, they tended to start to throw everything out, the baby out with the bathwater as well. Thankfully, I think a lot of evangelical scholars and overtime scholarship has come back around to all of those things. See, there are good answers for those challenges. I'm familiar with most of them, I think, and I feel like there's good answers for those challenges. But the way they do that, right, is to say, well, for example, the most popular way to understand this is um, classical liberal understanding of the resurrection. Okay? Somebody would say, well, did Jesus really raise from the dead? The answer is, I don't know if that matters or not so much as what matters is that the apostles believed that he did and it created faith in their hearts that they could live by and go on with. And so it doesn't really matter whether Jesus raised from the dead or not. What matters is whether or not you believe that he did, which I think is so incredibly stupid. Yeah. Right? But here's the deal. But here's the deal. We all believe in Jesus and we believe this. But if you think about it, if you're in Tübingen, Germany, Right in 1750 or 1800 or whenever, and you've been in good Sunday school, Lutheran Sunday school your whole life, and you get there and you start learning about discrepancies and things like that, you don't want to let go of, of this faith that you have. It means something to you. But at the same time, you can't quite believe the Bible like you did when you were in the third grade. It's understandable why somebody would want to hang on to one and not the other. I think they're wrong. I think it's dumb. But I get the impulse, right? And I want to be fair to those folks. And that's part of like how I see some of my ministry over time is that we're going to see more and more people trying to get a faith in Jesus apart from the Bible. And, and one thing I want to do is make sure as a church and for me as a pastor that we're trying to help make a defense for folks of why you shouldn't do that and why it's worse in the long run for what you're trying to accomplish. So I think that's how folks get there. And there are just waves of progressivism that have happened forever and will always happen. Um. And, and there have been people, I mentioned Jesus not being a Marcionite earlier. There was a, Mar, a guy named Marcion in the early church, right, who wrote off all the Old Testament um, because uh, he was a Gnostic. I mean, there's always reasons. People like, I mean, let's all be honest. If you had to choose one, I know which one you'd choose, you know. And so some people just feel a little more licensed to do it. And uh, there's challenges in the Old Testament. I want to make sure that we're keeping them together. Did that answer your question, Nan? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? That was a great one. I loved it. It's fun. I never thought I'd be defending Friedrich Schleiermacher in the First Baptist Church Fellowship Hall, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It is important, though. Let me just, this is my last word, just a, a free word here. You know, always make sure you um, try to be at least somewhat empathetic for what other people believe. Um, because, and when you disagree with someone, it's really important to be able, like, to present what they believe in a way that they would agree with. Right? You, you want to just make sure, like, you don't want to just, it's real easy. I was talking about this morning in my sermon, right? It's real easy just to throw out red meat. Just be like, They're so dumb. These people are so dumb. It's ridiculous or whatever. Well, no, I mean, there's usually reasons why people get places. And it's really important for us as Christians, like for example, we have young people in our church who are growing up right now who one day are going to go to college or go here or go there or go to YouTube these days or whatever. And they're going to hear things and they're going to hear people that disagree with their pastor. So if I've been my whole life getting up and screaming about evolution or gay marriage or whatever every Sunday in a way that people who hold to those things wouldn't agree with, then... Our kids in our church are going to go hear them talk and they're going to say, well, my preacher doesn't even know what he's talking about. I've just been brainwashed at church. No, we want to make sure that we're being honest and thinking through these things and presenting the faith in a reasonable way. 
That, is, that doesn't mean that we're not critical or that we're allergic to critique. I hope, hope that's clear. But it does mean we want to be fair and careful and nuanced as we deal with these different issues. I'm, I'm real passionate about that. Christians should, be, should set the example. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to all, be apparent to all. We should be leading on that, being reasonable. All right, any other questions? I want to keep you here all night. Anything else? Nobody wants to be that guy, you know, it's like, well, we're about to get out of class and I'm going to, all right. <laughs> Let me pray for us. And if you have other questions, you can, uh, you can get with me afterward. And I uh, hope this has been helpful for you. And uh, Woody, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Classic, that would have been great. All right, let me pray for us. And again, I'm, I'll be here. And if you've got questions or whatever, let me know. Let's pray. God, help us to be obedient Christians. Just to grow in holiness. Help us to always look to Christ who fulfilled the law for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.